The Jodcast, Walking the Plank, with Liz Guzman, Libby Jones, Indy Leclerc, Ian McDonald, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, March 2013, Extra Edition, a Plank Special. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy and I'm joined today by fellow presenters Mark and Liz. Hi guys. Hi. Hello. Today we're quite excited in the studio in anticipation of the uh, the new results from the Planck mission, uh, which are being released uh, after m- many months of secrecy within the corridors of JBCA. <laughs> years of secrecy, I'd say. Yeah, perhaps. years. So, yeah, Planck was launched in 2009, and since then people have been very, very secret about everything that is observing. Um, so finally, it's going to be released... Um, it's being released now. <laughs> if you're listening to this, then the results should be out. We're recording this the day before. Um, but the reason everyone's so excited is that Planck is going to bring us the most accurate measurements ever taken of the cosmic microwave background, the radiation which sort of suffuses the universe. So there was COBE, and then there was WMAP, and now Planck is going to be the new standard for measurement of the cosmic microwave background. So hopefully we'll have um, from today or tomorrow onwards... Uh, a bigger, a better picture uh, of the cosmology of the universe. In the show this time, we talked to Dr. Paddy Leahy about some of today's Planck results, and your astronomical questions are answered by Dr. Ian MacDonald. But first, before all that, Libby talked to Professor Richard Davis about the star of this show, the Planck instrument. Joining me on the Jogcast day is Professor Richard Davies from the University of Manchester. Hello and welcome back to the Jogcast. Hello, I'm pleased to be here. The last time you talked to us on the Jogcast, Planck had just been launched. Can you fill us in a bit more about what you've been doing since then? Yes, well, the uh, <clears throat> the fantastic thing is it all went up and worked. Uh, at, at the time of the launch, we had no idea uh, whether the instrument was working because it wasn't switched on. Uh, it didn't get switched on for about another 20 days. And I was present at the data processing centre in Trieste. And when we switched our amplifiers on, uh, there are 20 amplifiers altogether, and it took us two days um, to switch them on uh, because we had to be in contact with the spacecraft when that happened, and that happens over a two-hour period every day, so it took us four hours to switch them all on, and uh, it was very, very exciting. Um, when we last ran the amplifiers, had been in CSL, Centrale Spatiale Liège, in a big Christat as big as my house, cooled down to 4 Kelvin, and so we knew the performance of all the amplifiers, and when we switched them on in space, I was astonished to find that even though they were now nearly a million miles from the Earth, every single one of them turned on with the currents and voltages uh, within 1% of how they'd performed in the laboratory at Liège. And given what had happened to them, it was uh, it was very exciting. So with 1% of what you were testing, um, the performance was as expected in space? So this was just the current through the transistors. At that stage, we hadn't actually measured the performances uh, as, as radiometers. Uh, but I'm happy to say uh, that they all worked. I, I must admit, I, I, I thought we might lose about 10%. Uh, if you just looked at other people having tried to build radiometers, uh, that's about the sort of figure that had been achieved. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, they, all 20 worked. Um, there are 8,000 bond wires that uh, join the whole thing together, and it was built by our technician, uh, Eddie Blackhurst. Uh, but Eddie didn't want to do the checking, which was quite right, so somebody had to check all these bond wires, and so it fell to me uh, to check all 8,000 of them. 
And I, when having checked all those, I thought, well, what's the chance of all those still working when it launched? Well, they did. Uh, it, it's, it, it must say something about this space qualification. I think we had some luck as well. Let's let's be let's be let's be serious here. Well, it seems like that was very successful with everything working as you expected. Can you tell us just a bit more in general about the instrument that you were helping design? <clears throat> well, I'll tell you a little bit more about the launcher start. What what we didn't know um, uh, is how accurately the Ariane rocket had managed to post uh, Planck into its correct orbit. Uh, the Ariane rocket was responsible for it for it getting there. There was some small motors on Planck that then decelerated it to put it into the L2 orbit. But there was quite a margin for error uh, as to how accurately it would do that. And so there was quite a, uh, a, a an amount of fuel on, the, on Planck um, that could be used if it was in the wrong place. It could be correct and, and put it into the right place. In fact, the Ariane did, it, Ariane did a perfect job. It actually, we didn't know this at the time. We didn't learn uh, for a few weeks that it had actually put it into a perfect orbit which means that we've actually got enough propellant on Planck to run it for 20 years. Um, we're not intending to run it for 20 years, but it's that good. But it has meant um, that we, even though HFI could only run for two and a half years, and that was the design life, because uh, it loses its um, helium-3 that's required to cool it down, the LFI, the low-frequency instrument, the one that I was involved with, um, that uh, uh, is recyclable, and uh, could in principle for last last for a lot longer. And so far, we've been running for four years. So the nominal mission was only meant to be one year. So we've run it for four years. So uh, those of you who know about observing time versus sensitivity, four times longer means you get double the sensitivity. So the performance of, of the LFI, uh, we have things called requirements and goals. And the requirement is you have to promise to meet the requirement, that's the aim. Uh, and then if you're really, really lucky, you try and achieve the goals, which are actually considerably uh, higher in sensitivity. And the good news is that Planck, uh, the LFI, now has uh, reached its goal, not only reached its requirements, but reached its goals. Uh, the HFI reached its goals almost immediately and has worked beautifully. So both cameras have performed fantastically. So the data we've got is really quite astounding. And I'll be showing it to... Uh, all the scientists here in Manchester tomorrow as the press is as the press is released. But I can't talk about those actual cosmological <laughs> results at this stage. But the performance of the machine uh, is uh, is well published, and so I, I can I'm quite free to talk about any of that. Of course, we're absolutely overjoyed. I mean, I've worked on this machine for 18 years. I'm able to measure it by my son's age because I started working on it when he was born, and he's 18 years old, so I'm able to get that right every year. <laughs> I just have to remember my son's birthday. And per year, how much of the sky does it map? So it sees the whole sky every six months. So it, <clears throat> it's in an orbit called L2, which is a million miles away from the Earth. So it's four times further away than the moon. It, it used to touch me sometimes when I was handling the bits and pieces of the equipment to, to think... This thing's going four times further away than Neil Armstrong. Uh, it hadn't quite twigged that this was. It's a truly, truly amazing uh, thing that it's going to, that, that, it, that it did. And what type of objects is the low frequency array looking at? So <clears throat> it's a survey instrument, and as I say, within six months we survey the whole sky. Um, so we it's a heliocentric orbit. We rotate round 
the sun at the same rate as the earth, the same angular rate. So if you imagine the line joining the sun and the earth and Planck, uh, that, that always remains in, remains in a straight line as the year continues. Planck itself is looking, it has the earth and the moon and the sun behind it. It's looking in the cold direction. And so as the year progresses, so the spacecraft is looking at different regions of the sky, it's spinning, uh, and so it is able to survey the whole of the sky every six months. So four years will actually complete eight surveys. And will you, you said you have 20 more years worth of fuel, but you won't run it for that long. How uh, long do you envision it being run for? This is, this is a problem because it does cost quite a bit of money to run it because this is it's just the manpower uh, on the ground and running the data links, uh, the communication with, with the spacecraft, uh, it is quite expensive. And anyway, it has been agreed that we're running it for four years uh, four years actual observing, so that's like four years and three months because we spent three months getting there and getting it all tuned up um, and, and working. Beyond that, nothing else is agreed. Uh, the thing that will probably limit it is a machine called the sorption cooler. Uh, this is the most expensive, miserable refrigerator you can imagine. It, it has a cooling power of one watt. It has no moving parts. It works just by heating and cooling, palladium. Uh, metal and the hydrogen uh, comes out of the palladium when you heat it and goes into the palladium when it cools down and in that way you can make a compressor and also enable the gas to expand and contract and uh, this this actually cost 40 million dollars and there are two of those on board and they have a limited life but uh, the king is dead long live the king these things can be regenerated what happens is the palladium metal decays and starts to become a powder. But if you heat it hot enough, um, it can regenerate into the proper metallic state again. Um, this has been done on the ground, uh, but it's never been done in space. So we are going to regenerate uh, later this year. And uh, we don't know how much life there will be left in it. Looking on the good side, we have we have got funding to run it for... Uh, till, till August, which will make the end of the fourth year. Now that the, the high-frequency array is no longer working in counterpart with the low-frequency array, do they have very different science goals that you can achieve? <coughs> well, both instruments are surveying the sky. Uh, the low-frequency instrument works from uh, 30 to nearly 100 gigahertz, and the high-frequency instrument works from 100 gigahertz to 857. The, the, the problem we have to observe the microwave background uh, is, is to uh, find the regions where we can look where we don't see the foregrounds, the so-called emission from the galaxy. And these foregrounds come to a minimum around 70 gigs, uh, 70 gigahertz. Above that, you start to get, you get thermal dust. On the uh, uh, six months date of the first survey, which is published, I'm sure many people of you have seen that, seen that, the white that stuff is the 857 gigahertz. That's all thermal dust emission. Uh, at very low frequencies, uh, we see radiation from the galaxy called synch synchrotron radiation and free-free radiation. And so we try and go for the uh, region in between. But we need all the frequency channels so we can subtract these foregrounds out, which enables us to see the microwave background in great detail. But when you study these foregrounds, you have to study them in great detail to, to be able to sub subtract them out accurately. 
a lot of the processes for subtracting these things out are only good to about 30%, and we need significantly better than 0.1%. Is this due to the sensitivity and resolution that Planck's been able to do, that you need this extra detail to get rid of the foregrounds? Indeed. But what happens, of course, when you study something in such detail, you start getting interested (laughs) in it for its own right. And this is an area where the University of Manchester, Jodrell Bank, uh, JBCA is is leading the world. It really stems from uh, the time of uh, Rod Davies, who is uh, still with us, and uh, he's very much uh, uh, he was the first co-I uh, to the Planck project, and it was de- indeed it was him who invited me to come and join in this project. Now he's got an interest in galactic astronomy that goes back for some sixty-five years, uh, so a very very long period of time. He's been interested. And I often joke that if you took Rod out into the galaxy and, and dropped him off, he'd find his way back. Because he, <laughs> he has a three-dimensional model of the galaxy in, in his head. So some results already for Planck have already been published. Can you tell us some about these results? OK. Well, I've mentioned the synchrotron radiation at low frequency and the free-free thermal Bramstrahlung, and I've mentioned thermal dust at high frequency. And so we all thought, great, we'll go and observe around 30, 40 gigahertz, which is where our LFI frequencies are. And would you believe, just when you thought it was safe to come out at night, we've discovered a new foreground. It's called anomalous dust. We call it anomalous dust because the pattern of it on the sky looks the same as the thermal dust. But it's too bright. It's At, at these low frequencies, the thermal dust has become very, very faint. And uh, it's, it's sort of 500 times brighter than the thermal dust. So the thermal be. dust is very, very, very cold dust. Yes, it is cold dust, that's right. Um, and the, the, So this anomalous dust we think must be associated with the dust. In fact, for a long time we've wondered, uh, and Rod has been very keen on this idea, that it might be spinning dust. So this is just like particles being equi- in equilibrium with photons, picking up their energy, uh, vibrating. So also... Uh, dust particles can spin. It's a remarkable thought that these uh, little tiny dust grains, about the size of a naphthalene molecule, that's mothballs, uh, for, for those of you who, <laughs> who know about these things, uh, these molecules have got 50 carbon atoms in, and with an infrared photon hitting them, they can spin at 30 gigahertz. And uh, if they're, if these molecules, which naphthalene is, are asymmetric in their electron distribution, then when you spin such a molecule, it looks like a little oscillating dipole, and they radiate by electromagnetic radiation. And the spectrum that you get matches very well with the spectrum. And this is what Planck has done very nicely, and it is this result is published, showing unequivocally uh, that the spectrum really fits very, very well with the spinning dust. That's a really cool discovery. So you also have a piece of plank in your, well, a piece of design testing material for plank. Can you tell us what you're holding and yes. what it does? You must think I'm a little bit mad because I'm sat here with a wrist strap on connected to the, the mains. But in fact, the, the wrist strap is merely, the mains is really connected to the earthing pad. So I'm handling uh, the, what we call the qualification model. This was the, uh, mo- the last model we made before we built the bits that actually flew. Uh, So this is as close as we could get uh, to the actual flight hardware. Uh, The transistors in here are so, the gates in them, the the important uh, parts, are so tiny that uh, the static carried by a human being, particularly on these nylon carpets we have in here, uh, would blow the transistors up. So I have to earth myself 
uh, before handling any of it. Um, the structure is, is a three-dimensional, I call it the Rubik Cube, it was designed by Frank Winder. Uh, I was absolutely f absolutely amazed at this thing when, when he, he showed me the uh, design. I'll show you on the computer screen uh, in a moment. And uh, uh, it all went together. Uh, I thought we'd have to make loads and loads of these models before we got something that actually assembled properly. In fact, it all fitted together and worked. It was hardly changed between this uh, qualification model and and the uh, and and the system that actually flew. What job is this model designed to do? Okay, so this is thirty one of the thirty gigahertz front end modules. It takes in two signals of the two polarizations from the horn, which then goes to an ortho mode transition, producing the two polarizations. It also takes in two reference channels. Uh, we have to have a reference signal, and uh, we use the uh, we use the b body. Uh, can of the HFI, which conveniently cools to four and a half Kelvin. We'd rather have we'd rather have two point seven uh, Kelvin. We we really want the same temperature as the microwave background as our reference signal. But uh, four point five Kelvin is pretty close, and and turned out to be sufficiently close for us to get uh, cancellation of uh, what we call red noise, which is a problem that transistors have. It's a noise uh, which increases the more the longer you wait. Uh, one of the problems that we get with 1 over F noise is cleaners with uh, uh, with uh, vacuum cleaners and uh, <laughs> and air conditioning that comes on and goes off during the day and night time and is different at the weekends. Of course, all that sort of thing disappears once you're in space, and so the hardware all worked much better than when it was on the ground, uh, when, when all the human beings were out of the way. And, of course, none of us were fiddling with it as well. I think that helped. <laughs> And the engineering involved in that is very detailed. You, how many of these were on the spacecraft? Okay, so we flew five of them, and we had a grant for two and a half million pounds, so in some sense you could argue that each of them cost a half a million pounds. And they were pretty well priceless to us because there wasn't sufficient time to build another one. Uh, having built them all so carefully, uh, what we did was put them in, in a, we packaged them up and put them in the back, back of one of the Jodrell Bank vehicles and drove them down to... Uh, Rutherford Appleton labs, labs and, and shook them to pieces. Well, we didn't shake them to pieces, we shook them violently. But uh, the rule now, uh, after Apollo 13, one of the things to come for Apollo 13, because they, they damaged Apollo 13, one of the tanks, with the testing. They actually tested it to destruction, so when they tried to use it, it blew up. We all know the Apollo 13 accident. And they modified how you do, uh, uh, how you do testing now of flight hardware. And that is the actual flight hardware, you don't push it up to the same level as the rocket vibrations. You, you do it less. What they used to do was actually test, they tested things without realising it, virtually to destruction. Uh, but we, we had, it was still frightening. Uh, you, you couldn't be in the room when the vibrator was on because it would have blown your eardrums. Wow. Uh, and uh, we used to measure the radio performance of these uh, pieces of equipment before we... Uh, shook them uh, and then measured them after we'd shaken them and we never we never saw any change whatsoever. The only thing we did see is we measured the vibration frequencies, so so-called eigenfrequencies for those who are theoretically minded. And these eigenfrequencies just changed a little bit in the first few seconds. And because this is actually made of lots of different bits and pieces all screwed together, I think the bit, bits and pieces just settled in slightly. There must have been microscopic movements, so the frequencies just changed slightly. 
um, the, the reason for the shaking is to make sure that nothing's going to fall off. Because when you put your, your piece of equipment on the spacecraft, it's vital that nothing, nothing falls off and damages any other piece of equipment. Are they tested individually as well as all combined together, or is it just an individual testing? So each one of these combined FEMS were tested on block. We didn't test the pieces inside, but we did test each FEM separately. And incidentally, it cost us £1,000 to test each one. Uh, the, 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 uh, the vibrator that it goes on, we had to rent for a day. Uh, it looked rather funny because I think you could have put a small tractor on, on, the, uh, on the vibrator <laughs> and to see our little tiny cube, which we'd have pre- prepared so carefully over the previous months and years to put it on this vibrator. But of course, worse was to come. Uh, we were to stick it on a lorry and drive it to, uh, down to Laban in Italy uh, and then from there went to CSL in, in Belgium, then to S-Labs uh, in, uh, in Nordwijk in Holland, and then on an Antonov aircraft, the big Russian aircraft, and flown to Kourou in Central America, and then onto the top of the rocket and Ariane rocket and blasted into space. And all I can say is when the solid fuel rockets go off on the, on the Ariane, it's rather similar to the space shuttle. It's just like an explosion. And the, the thing was blasted a million miles away, and to, even to this day, I still find it amazing to, to think that it all worked after everything that was done to these poor little these poor little things, which were like little jewels to us. Because they're about five centimetres by about three centimetres? Yes, it's like two Swan Vesta boxes of matches, isn't it? That's about yeah, what it's like, yeah. they're not very The thing big. I'm holding is, is quite heavy because it's made of brass and then got, it's gold-plated. Uh, what we actually flew was made of aluminium. Uh, one of the problems is you can't gold-plate aluminium. Uh, but we discovered you you can nickel plate it, and then after nickel plating you can gold plate it. So you had to have a, a multiple coating system. I used to have nightmares about space qualification. <laughs> but having said all that, all this process of space qualification, and I did say a bit of luck, has resulted in the in the machine all operate, all of it worked, all the bits that we built, and they're all still working as I speak now. Was there any other thing that you were building beyond these? that you're holding now? Oh, well, it's this, what I hold here, is uh, one of the amplifiers. And the amplifiers have got two sides, uh, the actual RF side, the radio frequency side. So this is the 30 gigahertz amplifier. And one end, the signals go in and they come out the other end. And there's a line, uh, a transmission line through the middle. And you can see where the four transistors would fit. And then on the back is all the circuitry associated with the biases, the, the DC voltages, if you like, what your batteries would deliver if this was a transistor amplifier of your own. And uh, the, the wiring is all done with um, bond wires, um, which are little gold wires that are thinner than a human hair, and they are uh, attached uh, to the, the reason, now you will be able to explain why we need these surfaces gold-plated, because the bond wires are attached to everything, uh, because it's gold to gold, and what happens is you melt the gold into the other gold and the two the two regions fuse together. It's called bonding, and you bond by heat and by pressure. Now the pressure is somewhat hair raising. Uh, it turns out the pressure is about one uh, one oil tanker per cubic meter. Uh, an oil tanker weighs about a hundred thousand tons. I used to joke with Eddie that that was the uh, the load that he was applying. Um, so that the the tip of this bonding uh, probe that was used here was only a few uh, microns across. And so although it's exerting a pressure 
of 100,000 tonnes per, per square metre. That pressure, the actual weight, if you like, on the tip was only six grams. <laughs> but that was equivalent to a pressure. But that was sufficient to melt the gold wire into the, the gold. And that was the quality of that melt was all important. That, that was the thing that determined whether the bond wires would stay on or fall off. And uh, it seems like you've done a very good job with everything. Well, I think <laughs> I, I, it's my, it was my team of technicians and engineers. Uh, I, I was the one who went, and got out, went out and got the, the grant. As I say, I, I did do the job of checking all the bond wires. <laughs> and there are, you can work it out yourself, there are 200 bond wires on the back and there are 200 bond wires on the front. So that makes 400 bond wires in each amplifier and there are 20 amplifiers. And I think if you multiply 400 by 20, you get 8,000. So that's my calculation of 8,000 bond yes. wires. Wow, and they're, they're so tiny to check everything. Well, the transistors themselves are invisible. And I don't know how Eddie did it. If you, They were in a gel pack, and if you held up the gel pack to a bright light, uh, you could just see them as... in each. There were little, little two-millimetre squares. And in the middle of each two-metre square, if you held them up to the light, you could just see a tiny fleck of gold. And that tiny fleck of gold was the transistor. And Eddie could pick those up with a pair of tweezers and carry them across and glue them into the circuit. And this tiny fleck that you could barely see had got something like 10 pads on it, 10 connections. And he could then bond wires to these 10 pads under a microscope by hand. He was bonding the wires by hand onto the transistor. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dark art to being able to put these things together. <laughs> but you see now why, why, why I was so worried about losing some of these. Um, we, we've never actually lost a bond wire on any of these amplifiers. We did lose them in the early days. What we had to do was, um, was do what we called a docket. So before we started bonding, Eddie would bond some uh, wires to a, a surface of gold and then he'd pull them off. And he would measure the force that he needed to pull the wires off. And they all had to meet, meet this level. So he would check that his bonder was working properly by doing this docket, pulling them off, check they were okay. Then he'd do his bonding, and then he'd do another docket. He had to, do, he had to test the bonder before he started bonding, do the bonding, and then test the bonder after and check that it was, it was still performing just the same. So in that way, we were confident that the wires that had been bonded would stay on. Well, thank you very much for showing me that the the test modules. It's excellent and really fascinating, and very scary that you're still kind of plugged up to the mains. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll switch myself off. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to finding out the results from Plank tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks for that, Libby. For our main interview this episode, Mark talked to Dr. Paddy Leahy from here at the Jodrellbank Centre for Astrophysics about some of Planck's new results. Well, it's the day of the release of the Planck results, long awaited, um, and I'm talking to Dr Paddy Leahy uh, about those results. He um, works here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics and has been involved with analysing the data from Planck. So, Paddy, I thought I'd just first ask you, what is it that Planck is actually measuring? So it's measuring the light from the Big Bang itself, which is now being redshifted, so it's at radio waves or microwaves, uh, wavelengths from around a millimetre, um, but Planck measures from one centimetre to about a third of a millimetre. And that light from the Big Bang, how is it that we can see that now? 
Well, it's simply been traveling through the universe, which effectively is transparent for the whole history of the universe, the last 13 and a half billion years. I now have to say 13.8 billion years. <laughs> um, and uh, we pick it up with our radio receivers on the Planck satellite. So we've got this sort of radiation streaming past us all the time, but essentially emitted at almost the same moment in the universe's history. That's right. And, and a rather narrow range of times, about 380,000 years just after, uh, after the Big Bang itself, the universe rapidly became transparent. Up to that point, the photons have just been bouncing around at random, rapidly bouncing off electrons which are scattered through the universe. But at that point, the electrons all joined up with protons to make hydrogen atoms. And since then, those electrons have been moving in random directions, so we just see the ones that happen to be heading towards Earth from their point of origin in a huge sphere, radius almost the same as the universe, um, which is what we see as the microwave background surrounding us. Right. So this was quite an astonishing discovery. Um, I know when it, when it was first measured by, was it Penzias and Wilson who found it, and they, they were concerned it might have been bird droppings on their receiver or something. That, well, they, um, they found an unexpected noise in their telescope at Bell Telephone Labs, uh, one of the several great discoveries that laboratory has made. But in fact, it, it, it was quite a strong signal by the standards at the time. It's just um, no one uh, in the business of making these accurate radio measurements expected to see it. Not so far away, there were people who'd been predicting it, but didn't expect anybody to be able to measure it. So yeah. putting the two together was a great discovery, really. So since then, people have been measuring it ever more accurately. Um, so can you tell us uh, why the Planck spacecraft uh, was sent out there to, to do these more accurate measurements? Well, it, Planck uh, was designed in, in the early 90s, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of the first um, successful microwave background satellite, which was COBE, which actually proved um, beyond all doubt that the radiation came from the Big Bang, had a perfect black body temperature spectrum, and detected also for the first time fluctuations in the temperature, which were due to the seeds of the structure which forms galaxies. So the universe had been perfectly uniform. Galaxies would never have been able to collapse because every atom would be pulled equally in all directions and so it wouldn't fall into any particular point to make a, a star or a galaxy. So the, we knew the universe had to be slightly irregular very early on uh, and that should be reflected in the microwave background. Apparently it's, its brightness being varying slightly from point to point on the sky. So Kobe discovered that, but very crudely. And uh, the race was then on to measure that precisely. And there was a, a whole range of experiments on the ground and in space designed to, to follow that up. So the American WMAP satellite got up there first and uh, produced some very nice results. But Planck goes beyond WMAP in many ways. In particular, our best channels that are many times more sensitive than WMAP, which allows us to measure these temperature fluctuations at a very low level. Very small fluctuations are, are accessible to Planck, and we can also see smaller physical fluctuations on the sky than WMAP can. So I'm thinking now of what we'll probably link to in the show notes, which is this map of the sky that's a kind of patchwork of sort of reds and greens and blues, and those are the different temperatures that we see for the that's CMB. Right. That's not exactly random but it's sort of the seeds of our our own universe as it is today well yeah there's, 
one of the, the big questions is just how random it is. Um, and we've done part of the analysis from our group uh, is to look at all the tests to see whether, for instance, there's statistically it's the same in all directions on the sky, whether the, the size of the fluctuations is predicted by what's called the Gaussian probability distribution. The, the basic theory of how structure originates in the universe, which is the inflationary theory, predicts that both that statistically it should be isotropic and it should be Gaussian. What we actually find is it's, it's very close to Gaussian. We can't measure any um, non-Gaussian signature in it at all. There are hints of anisotropy, that is, um, being different in different directions, more fluctuations on one side of the sky than the other, for instance. They're there in the data, but it's not entirely clear whether that's not just a sort of level of anisotropy you would expect at random. Right, so there could just be a random feature of our of own our particular universe. universe. Yeah. And so when when we're measuring those anisotropies, which means the the distribution of these patches of different temperature, it's been made into a graph where you've got power on one axis and then you've got this thing called multipole on the other axis and you've sort of got this wavy line with about eight bumps in it. Yes. And can you tell us about what the what the multipole means and what it's telling us there? Well, let's say a monopole would be something that's the same all over the sky. A dipole is hotter on one side of the sky than the other. The next one up is actually uh, the quadrupole, which has two hot patches and two cold patches at right angles to it, and so on. Octopole is the one after that. You so get more and more splitting it into smaller and smaller so patches. So yeah. it, it's the equivalent uh, on, of analysing the sky to a technique that's often used by engineers to look at time series, which is called Fourier analysis. So say if you took the um, sound waves that we're making now and put them through um, a spectrometer, you would see certain frequencies. Mm -hmm. um, so what the equivalent of a frequency in a sound wave is a multipole as a distribution of bright and, and dark spots on the sky. So sort of larger patches or, or smaller patches, exactly. and how many of those there? So the higher the multipole, the smaller the typical patch sizes. But the amazing thing with Planck is that we had these data points tracing out exactly the bumps that were predicted by the cosmological models. So can you talk about how yeah. that model predicts those results? Well, yes. <laughs> um, with, with great um, mathematical subtlety is, is one um, way of answering it. So the theory of inflation predicts that you... Not, not on the sky, but in space, you get ripples, uh, literally, which are, well, which are waves. It predicts that in a, if you measure the, the amplitude of those waves in a certain way, irrespective of, of the wavelengths, you get the same amount of power, mm -hmm. so-called scale-free spectrum. Um, you then have to translate that as, into what you would actually see on the sky. That will give you a very bland sky with no particular peaks on the diagram you're talking about. But then you have to allow for the way the universe evolves in time in its first 380,000 years before the photons are, are released. And the beginnings of the gravitational clumping that go on to make galaxies work better at some scales, um, some physical sizes than others. And that tr translates into higher or lower amplitudes for certain multiples on the sky. So certain spot sizes turn out to be amplified, so we see brighter and darker patches at that scale. Other spot sizes 
are de-amplified, so we see much less fluctuations on those scales. And, and you, the graph you're talking about shows that the, this, this set of fluctuations where some, some scales get extra, some less goes on for a, a whole series of eight different scales that we can directly measure from about one degree on the sky down to uh, about, well, about five minutes of arc is the level we've got to. Okay, so it's uh, really constraining our models of the universe. Um, so maybe what I get on to next, at the risk of this sounding a bit like um, a, a budget by a chancellor, um, is some of the headline numbers that came out of Planck because it's been able to help us constrain some of the um, sort of important numbers about our universe, like the age and how fast it's expanding and how much dark matter and dark energy we think there is, hasn't it? Yes, it, it has, and that, that's the name of the game in this business. So, of course, every previous experiment has also measured these numbers. And in a sense, the, the, the headline from Planck is that nothing was wrong, um, mm -hmm. that the picture, our basic picture of the universe, uh, despite the fact that Planck data is, is really vastly better than anything that's come before, hasn't changed. Um, some of the numbers have moved a little bit, so it seems that the universe is expanding slightly more slowly um, than we thought before. So the, the famous Hubble constant, um, Planck is measuring at about 68 whereas uh, the space telescope measurements are coming in about 74, a discrepancy which is you know, sort of about a 1% chance that, that those two numbers would be that far apart just by chance. It's quite a lot bit better than the situation we were when I started my career where there were people saying the number was 50 and there were people saying, it, <laughs> no, it had to be more than 100. So <laughs> they couldn't agree to within a factor of two. And we're now wow. uh, agreeing to within about 5%, but, but apparently a, a discrepancy nevertheless. And that number, just to sort of clarify for people, that means if you go another megaparsec away in the universe, um, which is a sort of about 3 million light years or so, then things should be expanding away from you at about 67 kilometers per second faster. Is that That's right? right. Which is quite, so, quite fast. <laughs> well, it's, uh, there are a lot of megaparsecs in the universe, so by the time you get... get three-quarters of the way across the universe, things are actually moving away from you at the speed of light. That's what I call fast. <laughs> um, and then there was the the age of the universe, which um, I've often had it sort of quoted as 13.7 billion years. So, so at that, that point, um, essentially we agree within the error bars. Um, our new number is, is 13.8 plus or minus 0 0.06. So very, very close to the previous value. And it turns out that that number is one of the ones that's really sharply pinned down by just measuring a few of these peaks in the uh, angular power spectrum that you were describing earlier. Right, so that's one of the sort of robust numbers. Exactly. <clears throat> and then we had the um, amount of dark energy and the amount of dark matter and the amount of normal baryonic matter, as they call it, which is what we're made of. And um, they were saying during the press conference that before... Planck's results, we had something like 73% dark energy as a, as a fraction of the universe's energy. 23% was dark matter and about 4.5% was supposed to be normal matter such as we're made of. And what have we got now? So it's now about 69% dark energy, which is essentially what's left over when you take... Um, we, let, me, let me rephrase this. Um, these, these percentages are based on the idea that the universe has just precisely got the amount of energy in it that it will expand forever, the so-called uh, flat space, which means that Euclidean geometry applies on a large scale. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the, the big questions in cosmology has always been whether the universe is curved um, and whether, for instance, if it was positively curved, that means if you travel outwards in a straight line for uh, the history of the universe or something, you might come back to the place you originally started, like going around, um, so walking north on a planet, you just keep walking, you eventually get back to where you started. And Planck is showing really for the first time from a pure CMB experiment, the universe is almost exactly flat. So though, if you add up the, the different components using this parameterization, they come to, to one, which is what you need for a, a flat universe. So of that, the stuff that we can easily detect is matter, which we detect by its gravitational effect. And uh, for that, we've got about 31% uh, of the total energy density you, you need to make the universe flat is matter. So that's including so dark matter. That, that, well. That's dark matter and, and ordinary so-called baryonic matter, the stuff we're made of. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it, the 69%, is, is the dark energy, which is you need to make up the difference. Which is causing, the, as far which as you can tell, the expansion. Is, to... In order to have accelerating expansion, you need dark energy. The universe would expand quite happily if there was none of that in it, but it would be gradually slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up, and that's the signature of that. And there was one other number which which was quite interesting, because I noticed that even among the physicists in the audience, it stumped a few people, and um, it was a number that was referred to as the slope of the primordial spectrum. And <laughs> it was a number that was measured to be around about 0.96, and the interesting thing was that it was not 1. Exactly. So what did that yes. mean? So before gravity starts working on this. I'm, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. The, at the very beginning of the universe, um, inflation creates structure, and it creates it essentially equally on all scales. Um, so, this, In fact, the way it creates it is, is very interesting. It, it's literally due to quantum fluctuations. So the very largest scale things we can see in the universe are caused by quantum fluctuations on, on a tiny atomic scale but they've been blown up to enormous size by this inflationary period at the beginning of the universe. So inflation expands and expands the universe at an ever-accelerating rate exponentially, uh, in fact. And that means that the earlier in that inflationary period you get, um, the bigger the structure has been blown up to. So there was this inflationary period which came to an end. The way it works is that since structure is generated by these quantum fluctuations, which are happening the same way all the time, but the earlier ones have been blown up bigger, right. you get um, fluctuation power distributed over a range of physical scale size from gigaparsecs down through megaparsecs to the size of stars and eventually down to atoms. Um, and if it is distributed in effectively equal power on all those scales, we say the slope n is 1. So one of the strong predictions of inflation was that this slope should be pretty close to 1, but not exactly, because that's what you would get if inflation was still going on now. Right. And it had to stop, otherwise nothing would be able to collapse and form galaxies and so on. So when inflation comes to a halt, that changes the distribution of power very slightly as on scales that we're interested in that we can actually see in the sky. So the prediction actually is actually different models could give you numbers which are different from one on either side. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's quite significant that it's less than one because that rules out a whole bunch of, in, of inflationary models. Inflation isn't so much a theory as a, a kind of theory and, and the 
thousands, literally, of inflationary theories, uh, which are very hard to tell apart, but we've got rid of about half of them right. with this clear measurement. To be fair, the WMAC probe had also indicated NS less than one, but not to such um, uh, you know, an undeniable statistical significance. Right, okay. So it actually sort of helps to try and constrain this slightly mysterious inflation. Um, the, the other thing I was interested in was they were talking about how it, this um, was based on the Lambda CDM cosmological model, as they call it, which is the dark energy plus um, cold dark cold matter. Dark matter um, that's right. And I remember hearing Professor Carlos Frank talking a bit about how it might be difficult to say whether this dark matter was cold or whether it could be a bit warm, a little bit faster. The results from Planck, will they, do you think they'll help um, people like him to, to constrain their models? Well, they certainly constrain specific models of, of warm dark matter. Let, let me unwind that a bit. What, what we mean by cold versus warm is the speed that the particles were moving around. Um, so cold particles are moving slowly, warm particles reasonably fast. Hot particles would be moving nearly at the speed of light. Um, mm -hmm. No half measures in cosmology. Um, <laughs> Specifically, it's how fast these particles were moving at the time that we see the, the cosmic background photons released, this 380,000 years after the beginning of the universe. One way to get hot dark matter, or a fraction of hot dark matter, for instance, is to have a lot of energy in neutrinos. Cosmological theory plus particle physics theory actually tells us just how much energy we can have in, in neutrinos, because we think there are three different types of them. But there's always a possibility that particle physicists have got it wrong, and there are actually some neutrinos that they've missed so far, which would allow to have, us to have more energy in neutrinos. So Planck has uh, set an upper limit on a number of different kinds of neutrinos, which basically is the three that we know and nothing else. Right. Um, so that, that puts a limit on, on the sort of how much hot dark matter. And, and if you think of that as a fraction of hot, a mixture of hot and cold gives you a little bit of warm matter. Right. Um, then that sets a limit. Otherwise, you have to specifically say what kind of theory are you asking about for, with warm dark matter. For each such theory, you can predict the power spectrum of cosmic background fluctuations and see if it fits um, our data or not. So we've we've done that for a few, but not you know, not every possible theory. That's, in, um, that's for people who have their own theories want to try that and compare it with the data. Right, so there's obviously still going to be a lot of people investigating these results further. Um, so maybe as a last thing, I just thought I'd ask you about some of the Planck results that haven't come out yet and, and what we might expect to see. Um, they were talking in the press conference about the polarised CMB, so the, the fraction of the cosmic microwave background that's actually in polarised radiation, and in particular people are trying to detect certain patterns in, in, in that. Um, when, when will we sort of see those results appearing? Certainly this time next year, at the very latest. Planck has been up there running for a, a year and a half since the results that have been published today were collected. So today's results are based on, on the official um, mission that was authorised ahead of time before launch, which is 15 months' worth of data. In fact, uh, it's, it's going to run for four years. One of the two instruments, in fact the most sensitive one, the high-frequency instrument, required uh, helium coolant, which ran out after just uh, about two years and three months. But still, that's nearly twice as much data as we've published today. So that extra data will help because polarization is extremely faint. So uh, whereas we're limited by all sorts of 
instrumental uh, calibration issues and so on basically set the limit of what we can do for the d data that's published so far. For polarization, it's, it's often it's just to do with we need more data just to get the noise down. Right. Um, so both both our calibration and, and the length of time is going to improve and that should produce some very nice polarization results in, in due course, <laughs> as I say, within a year anyway. And what would that um, tell us uh, about the uh, cosmology that we're looking well, at? Well, so there are, there are two things. Um, one is the, the sort of less spectacular one is to tell you more about what happened in the dark ages or how long the dark ages of the universe lasted. So the dark ages are the period after the microwave background is let loose, atoms form and rapidly cool down, and you have a very boring period of the universe in which it's basically smooth hydrogen gas, a little bit of helium, nothing happening. But that's gradually, over time, the clouds are condensing and forming uh, the first galaxies and stars. And as soon as those turn on, they start producing uh, light, and particularly ultraviolet light, which moves out through the universe and starts stripping the electrons off the atoms again. So we, we call that reionization. And that's really the dawn of the, the modern universe consisting of stars and galaxies. We know that process finished at a redshift of about six. So that's uh, about one, one and a half billion years after the Big Bang, something like that. But the question is, when did it start? And the polarization data can tell you that. Um, so we've got a rough estimate from WMAP, but, but Planck should really nail it down. From the point of view of the professional cosmologist, that's the less interesting of the two possibilities mm -hmm. that we can do. The other is that there's a certain pattern of polarization, which is only produced not after the um, microwave background was released, but long before actually at the time of inflation. So it's the only signal that we're getting directly from the, the period where the universe inflated, which was about 10 to the minus 35 seconds right. after the Big Bang, a ridiculously early time. Mm -hmm. But the exact time that it happens is one of the crucial numbers we'd like to know about inflation. As I say, there's a, inflation is a, is a bunch of theories, um, and one of the things that's different in different theories is the time that it happened. Mm -hmm. So the earlier it happened, the bigger this polarization effect turns out to be. It's one of the few things that if you push back in time, it becomes easier to see. So the, these are the infamous B-mode polarizations, which is we can pick out of the polarization by doing one of these mode analysis, a bit like the picking out the acoustic peaks. Planck already actually has put pretty good limits on, on that kind of thing from just from the temperature anisotropies, the temperature fluctuations that we've released today, but the polarization should be able to push that down by at least a factor of two. And obviously, we're always hoping that we'll actually detect something in that mm -hmm. gap. Mm -hmm. uh, whether we do or not, we'll have to see. Right. Well, those are very exciting results and, and more to come. So thank you very much, Paddy. Well, thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. I want to talk about near-Earth objects, because there seem to have been a lot of objects near the Earth recently, slightly too close for comfort in some cases. Um, there was the um, meteor that exploded over Russia, that I'm sure everyone heard about, um, not to mention the asteroid that was only something like 30,000 kilometres from the Earth quite recently. 
Uh, it was about 50 meters across, I think. And there's also another one um, called 2013 ET and passed about two and a half times more distant than the moon from the Earth. So there seems to be a lot of these things about. And in view of that, NASA is setting up an experimental asteroid radar array at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It consists of three dishes, each 12 meters across, and they're separated by about 60 meters. So the idea with that is to get a good resolution and a really good look at asteroids and near-Earth objects. And they're going to observe at a frequency of 30 gigahertz, which is pretty high. It's higher than most radio observations, and it's a wavelength of about one centimeter. Uh, and that frequency is called Ka band. So they've called the instrument the Ka band object observation and monitoring project, or Kaboom for short. <laughs> so that's obviously what they're trying to avoid on the Earth. Um, again, the idea of using a high frequency is to get a better resolution. And it is a radar array, so they're actually going to be sending out radio waves and then collecting the echoes that come back off, off asteroids. Now, it's not actually really going to be a detector because it's not going to look at the whole sky all the time, which I think it would be the job of another instrument. Um, but it can then follow up on an asteroid and it can tell us things like the size and the shape and hopefully the composition of asteroids um, better than can be currently done by, for example, NASA's Goldstone antenna, which is a 70-meter dish. And with that one, they talk about detecting or observing near-Earth objects out to about 0.1 astronomical units, which is a tenth of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And with the kaboom, they're talking about looking out to one astronomical unit, or about 93 million miles from the Earth. So hopefully getting a really good idea of what's out there, and so we don't get any more of these things sneaking up on us. So it'll put all the uh, doomsday soothsayers out of a job then? Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully or, or maybe into a job if they find something that's coming towards us. But hopefully by knowing more about these objects, we'll have a better chance of moving them out of the way, which again is something in the slightly further future, but that would be ultimately what, what people would have to think about. Right, well, fascinating and slightly terrifying stuff there from uh, from Mark. Um Actually, I'm going to talk about something that, um, going from near-Earth objects to, to things that are on the Earth, um, strangely enough for astrophysics, um, because a group of scientists at the University of Surrey have managed to mimic uh, conditions uh, in type of stars known as white dwarfs right here on Earth in a lab. Now, the Sun, um, and most other stars in the galaxy, is going to end up one day as, as a white dwarf. So these are sort of dying stars are made up of a dim... And, and, and fading uh, core, they're about the size of the Earth, but they pack in something like 40 to 90% of the sun's mass, so they're extremely dense objects. And they actually um, they present a very, very strong magnetic field, which is about 100,000 Teslas. This is, I think, something like a trillion times uh, larger than the Earth's magnetic field. So incredibly strong field that we have no chance of recreating on Earth. Um, in fact, the highest fields we've created on Earth for about a thousand, only a 1,000 Teslas. Nevertheless, scientists have managed to mimic these conditions uh, using so crystalline silicon, which they've sprinkled with um, phosphorus atoms. And this structure mimics um, a hydrogen atom because there's sort of one proton and one electron that sort of pair up within the crystal. And it turns out that if you, if you apply reasonably strong magnetic fields of about 30 Tesla, the 
differences in size and, and, and properties like dielectric constant actually mean that you get a very similar behavior from these so-called fake hydrogen atoms to that that you get within a 100,000 Tesla white dwarf. So incredibly enough, they've managed to bring this really exotic behavior that's only been seen in, in, in spectral lines and observations of distant white dwarfs. They've managed to bring that right down into the lab. So it's it's something of a first for uh, for astrophysics. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Really amazing. And have they been able to find out anything that might apply to the physics of white dwarfs that we sort of didn't know before? Um, well, they'll definitely be in, uh, able to to study the properties of of all the behaviour of these atoms, these hydrogen atoms, uh, under these really strong magnetic fields, and maybe figure out something about what's going on in the white dwarfs themselves drawing parallels between between what's going what they can see in their labs um and also there it's been suspected that there are more exotic molecular compounds that form in white dwarfs due to the intense magnetic fields such as um helium 2 which uh isn't isn't seen at all um and their next step is to try and mimic some of these so helium and whether it can form interesting bonds uh and then apply the same lowish magnetic field but then recreate the conditions that are within the white dwarfs I'm hoping one day they might recreate a neutron star or a bit of a neutron star on Earth, maybe. <laughs> or maybe a black a hole. Star or a <laughs> yeah, watch out for creating black holes. <laughs> More doomsday stuff from the Jodcaster. <laughs> Yay. Right, so I'm going to talk about something miles and miles and miles away from here, like get out of the Earth and the solar system and the galaxy. So this is the first um, detection of... Uh, the furthest or the most distant galaxy ever observed. And this was observed with ALMA. So I just wanted to say that this is probably my last presenting episode in the Jodcast, and I'm going to work for ALMA in about a week and a half. So I thought it was appropriate to take to have an ALMA news. <laughs> and ALMA is just having news every week, so pretty much, yeah, it was easy to find a news. So um, if you... Maybe you heard about this. So the inauguration of ALMA was on the 13th of March. And it already started observing last about a year and a half ago. So with 16 antennas, they detected um, two galaxies, which are the most distant of the kind ever seen. And amazingly, they not only break the distance to astronomical records, but they also observe water molecules on these galaxies. So these are two star-forming galaxies. Um, and also the most important thing that they found is that models before these observations, they, they thought that um, galaxies start forming about 5 billion years after the Big Bang. But these distance galaxies, because you can measure the distance, you can kind of know where they are, um, when when are they formed. And um, they said that these galaxies, they're, they're just under 2 billion years old after the Big Bang. So these changes... Our predictions so these galaxies are forming before we thought so that's that's also pretty um, interesting what are they doing now is they're actually looking into 26 galaxies at a wavelength of three millimeters roughly which is this um, alma observes in a millimeter and they only need to observe these galaxies a few minutes this is about a hundred times faster than it was been done before which is pretty amazing and this is only with 16 antennas so alma is going to be 66. So you can imagine that in about a week, a, a year, um, you can observe a galaxy in probably seconds or 
microseconds or something, which is pretty amazing, yeah. At the moment, they're observing pretty bright galaxies, but they're planning on once, once the whole array is formed with 66 antennas, they can go in to find very dim and faint galaxies that could be observed due to gravitational lensing. So this is like a follow-up project. So why is ALMA good for water and for looking at starburst galaxies? So in the millimeter wavelength um, or regime, you can you actually most of the molecules are made on the millimeter regime. And funny enough, water is everywhere. So you find water in every single thing that you look at. And this is one of the reasons that why ALMA needed to be really high up um, on the mountains, because the telescopes are at 5,000 meters up. And this is because they want to avoid all the water in the atmosphere. So you get rid of the water in the atmosphere and you only have a very few. And then when you observe, you don't have any interference from the atmosphere. I mean, probably the best thing will have to have satellites, right? But away from outside the Earth. But that's way too expensive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, in, in the millimeter, you detect a lot of molecules. And this is why you can observe water. And the star formation is that also easily observed so the star formation yeah so these these galaxies are pretty young so they're forming new stars and um you you see this because you see a lot so on the spectra you see a lot of blue stars so that's that means that is forming new stars yeah if you see a lot of red stars or not many blue stars then it's um could be an elliptical galaxy or an older galaxy Great. So that's some really promising, uh, promising observations coming from the Atacama Desert and ALMA. And now from galaxies making stars to a star in the making, Dr. Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. Hi, we have three questions today. So we're going to start with Mick Carling that's saying, My son Ben suddenly came out with... Dad, is it never a true full moon because the sun will have to be directly behind you and then the moon will be in shadow? Thinking about it, I cannot follow his logic. Is it true? Yes, it's true. It's what we call a lunar eclipse. And there's one happening next month. Most people are familiar with the fact that solar eclipses happen when the moon comes in front of the sun, as seen from the Earth. But the Earth can also come in front of the sun, as seen from the moon. Now this doesn't happen every month because the Moon's orbit is tilted slightly, by about 5 degrees, to the Earth's orbit around the Sun. But every now and again they can come into alignment and the Moon passes through the Earth's shadow. Now if you're in Europe and have clear skies in the evening of Thursday, the 25th of April, have a look out to the east. The Moon will rise at sunset, just before 9pm British summer time. It'll be maximum eclipse at that time and will look like it's had a big chunk taken out of it where the Earth's shadow lies. And over the next couple of hours, the moon will slowly pass out of the Earth's shadow and regain its normal full brightness. If you're living in the UK and want to see a total lunar eclipse, where the entire moon disappears behind the Earth's shadow, you're going to have to wait until the early morning of the 28th of September 2015. Lunar eclipses can be quite spectacular, and can sometimes even turn the moon blood red. But that depends on exactly how the light from the sun is refracted through the Earth's atmosphere. But I don't want to wait that long, so I'm going to hope for clear skies on April the 25th. Pretty good. The next question is from Henry Marston, and he's asking, um, as the International Space Station interacts with the thin atmosphere where it orbits, it slows down and loses altitude. Every so often, rocket's power has to be used to rise it to a higher orbit. On the other hand, the moon is moving away at its orbit's orbital energy is used to rise tides on Earth. 
Why does the moon move outwards, but artificial satellites move inward? Well, Henry's actually answered his own question there. The ISS is dragged into the atmosphere, whereas the moon moves outwards because it's using up its orbital energy, raising tides and Earth. These are two fundamentally different processes, and they operate at different altitudes to different bodies. But let's look at this a little closer. Let's take atmospheric drag, for example. The further away from Earth you go, the thinner the atmosphere gets, the less drag you experience. If you can get high enough, the atmosphere peters out, and you have no drag. You can go into orbit forever. The ISS and other low-orbit satellites are positioned just inside the point at which atmospheric drag becomes important. Now that's a trade-off between the expense needed to launch things to higher orbits and the time that they can survive in lower orbits without being dragged into the atmosphere. But if you go a little higher than low Earth orbit, atmospheric drag stops becoming important. Now once you can ignore atmospheric drag, things become a lot simpler. Whether something moves inwards or outwards is controlled by the tides. Then it all depends on whether the orbiting satellite is going around faster or slower than the Earth spins. If a satellite is in a low orbit, orbiting faster than the Earth spins, then the bulge caused by the tide it exerts on the Earth will tend to drag the satellite back and it will lose energy and spiral in. However, if a satellite is in a high orbit, like the Moon, which orbits slower than the Earth spins, then the tidal bulge will rotate ahead of the satellite and will be pulled forwards, giving it energy and making it spiral away from the Earth. Of course, this also depends on the mass of the satellite, because that controls the size of the tidal bulge it creates. The effect on tiny man-made satellites is negligible. It would take more than the lifetime of the universe for them to spiral into the Earth via tidal forces alone. But if you've got something as big as the Moon, which can create rather larger tides, then it can travel much faster. The Moon, for example, is moving away from the Earth at 3.8 centimeters per year. Now, the other interesting thing is the effect this has on the Earth. The energy that goes into pushing the Moon away has to come from somewhere, and that somewhere is the Earth's rotation. Pushing the Moon away has caused the Earth to slow down. If you were here a few billion years ago, you might have noticed that the day was only about 20 hours long. It's increased to the 24 hours a day we have at present over that time. And it continues to change, not only due to the Moon's influence, but by whether our water is concentrated as ice at the poles or water at the equator, even major earthquakes and weather systems can measurably affect the length of the day by a few microseconds. Henry's final comment, which we didn't include here, asks how this applies to exoplanets. The same principle can occur here. Well, migrations of planets in these conditions are also controlled by factors in, during their formation, everything from viscous drag in the planetary disks to gravitational interactions between neighbouring planets. All these things come into play here. Tidal forces are important in making the closest in planets spiral into their stars. But that can't explain how they got there in the first place. But that's a whole other question for another time. Okay, and the third question from John Bordelon says, Watching for meteors, I noticed several flashes in the sky. I have seen these in many locals many times while watching the night sky. These points of light do not return in the same spot. What am I seeing? Good question. We don't know. Every now and again we get legitimate questions from very clever people saying they've said something in the sky. What is it? Well, the truth is that the sky is a big and exciting place in which many things go on. And a written description isn't usually enough to tell what they are, even a very precise one. Often it's confounded by the fact that people say, oh, it was about the size of an elephant, when because you don't know how far away it is, you don't know how big it is. It could easily have been the size of a pea or the size of a star. 
The fact of the matter is that our brains and eyes are better designed to find nutritious roots and beasts on the Serengeti than to critically analysing things in the night sky. Now, there are a lot of things that could produce the momentary flashes in the sky that John sees. I've seen some myself. I don't know what they were. A uh, few things that could produce flashes in various guises can be aeroplanes, iridium flare satellites and meteors. But most seasoned observers can identify these almost all of the time. John isn't the only person to have reported seeing flashes like these, though. But without further details, it's hard to know what's going on. For example, astronauts report seeing similar flashes, which are caused by high-energy particles decaying inside their eyeballs. Now, the Earth's magnetic field protects us from most of these particles on the surface, but not all of them. You can see them on long camera exposures, for example. But particles with energies high enough to punch through the atmosphere tend to get through a lot of other things, too. So if John's flashes are caused by decaying high-energy particles, he should still be able to see them when he's in a darkened room. Of course, if you're seeing random flashes, it could just be fundamental damage to your optic nerve, in which case you should go and see a doctor. They'll probably most likely tell you that they don't know what it is either. <laughs> OK, thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for that, Ian and Liz. Now we move on to your feedback. And we've had a lovely postcard from Jen Gupta down in Portsmouth uh, at the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation. And um, it shows a barred spiral galaxy that was taken with the dark energy camera. So um, Jen thinks she'd like our new postcards and she misses us. So I'm assuming that means the listeners rather than the presenters. <laughs> well, I miss Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure people will remember that Jen was one of the one of the presenters, um, and now I think she's just showing off about her new job down in Portsmouth. <laughs> Brilliant. So on the email, we got thank you all for your Ask an Astronomer questions. And on forum, we thank Mark C. and Joey O9292 for posting. On Facebook, Tony Angel posted a photograph of comet Panstars that he took from the SON Observatory in Granada in Spain. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It could be the Sun Observatory. I'm not sure. Um, but that's brilliant because I went to look for Comet Panstars um, and I couldn't find it with my telescope. So well done for taking that nice photograph. You can see the coma and everything. Nice. And on Twitter, thanks for the retweets and the follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Richard Davis and Paddy Leahy for the interviews. The editors were Dan Thornton, Liz Guzman and Mark Perver. And the producer was Dan Thornton. Till next time, jod on! on.